remember being 13 years sober, and I remember exactly how I relapsed. Mm. I was I had a little house. Two ladies, they their car broke down at Leshye Park, right across the street from my house. Black lady, white lady. I was like, damn, it was cute. I was like, oh shit, y'all come on. You know, you need some help. Car was overheating. Yeah, come on. You got anything cold to drink? So I go and give them a drink. I'm looking. I'm like, shit. And they had that look. You know, you could tell they they was in the mix. They said, hey, can we, you know, do a little something? I don't give a fuck. You know, bam, one hit is all it took. I'm back off to the races. Six months later, I was homeless. Mm. Wow. Welcome, sober champs. Uh, thank you for giving us your time and your energy. Coming down to Pioneer Square to Color Studios. Uh, we're on. We're on episode five, man. We made it past the first four and we're on five <laughs> so uh five's my favorite number so uh obviously we got to get larry in here for the hot one um what's up rude what's going on man how you feeling man happy to have larry here one of my best friends in the whole world and it's uh i'm just hyped i'm got two of my best friends in the whole world right here at the table so man we're gonna have a good discussion and chop it up and um yeah happy to have you here larry we're family yeah okay yeah. you know which is even more special because your family that I've grown to to love and be family with, so that's even more special for me. Pedro, I'm still working on you. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, we're de I'm definitely like a stepchild here. I understand uh -huh. that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm part of the family. Hey, we that's right. We family too. We family too. Right, right. We locked in. So yeah. you know, my hey, my door is open 24/7 for you. I know. And if my ass is on fire, and I need somebody to call. I'm gonna call God first, and then you second. Okay? Hey, that's all right. Third. That's okay. Third, I could be third. Hey, I, as long as I'm in the lineup, hey, man, I like to play. Hey, like just stay ready, okay? All right, stay all ready right. if I need you. You never hey, know. If I stay ready, I ain't got to get ready. There so. it is. Um, all right, man. So, so today we're just gonna have a nice discussion, talk about some life stuff, uh, how, how your journey's been, what, what you've been up to, and and you know, uh, being sober, chance we're gonna hear some some pretty uh, nitty gritty stuff, hopefully, you know, and. Uh, so that being said, uh, let's get to this. So was it, you got a sober date? I don't know what it is. I've been sober 11, 12 years, 13 years. So um, I'll back up a little bit. I mean, I can go way back. but You can go it, way back? Yeah, I, grew cool. way back. I was born in Los Angeles uh, in 1961. I grew up in the 60s and 70s in South Central Los Angeles. Watts, uh, I remember the Watts riots, times like that. Family of 13, I'm the youngest of 13, so uh, pretty much raised in a way by my older brothers and sisters. We're all still close, only we only lost two out of the 13. Um, Are your mother and father, were they Mother and father, they weren't together. Okay. They, bro they broke up uh, after me. They, were been they had been together and then they broke up they got back together for a minute. Mom got pregnant, had me. This was a three-year break from my nearest brother. So you're number 13? I'm number 13. Oh, and, oh, and, and the closest one to me is three years older. Right. So they had a little intermission. So um, moving ahead a little bit, grew up in Los Angeles. My dad was gone. Uh, my mentors and people I looked up to, early on that I can remember seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven were pimps and hustlers mm -hmm. and cowboys. Uh, I say cowboys because that was one of the escapes I had uh, growing up in Los Angeles 
away from the gangs, you know, the Crips and the Bloods, uh, I had an outlet to go to the horse stables, which was in our neighborhood. In, in the city? In the city, right Ooh. in the city. It, it was some horse stables there that would allow people to go on trail rides. So my older brother, who uh, is a bull rider, he's a world champion bull rider. Really? Yeah. He, he did that. We'll get into that another. That's another episode. But yeah. He's the first and only uh, African-American world champion bull rider in the Rodeo mm-hmm. Hall of Fame. So that's that's who I look up to a lot. For uh, a how much older is he? Four years. Oh, four years is you. He's four years older than okay. me. Okay. So I would follow him to the horse stables. My other brother and I, Chris, would follow Chucky to the horse stables to kind of stay out of, you know, a lot of the shit from the gangs. And uh, eventually I kind of made my own way uh, around the horse stables. I, I was small. I would ride horses and clean stalls, hustle, that kind of thing. And there were just people who owned horses who would board their horses at these stables. There were pimps. There was actors, people, business people from all walks of life. They had their own private horse. They would board it at the stables, and during the week, uh, I would, after school, skipping school, I would kind of assist in caring for their horses. I would go clean out the stalls. I'd walk their horses during the week, and they would come down on the weekend, pay me, so that kind of thing. That's kind of how that started. So uh, is that is that how you kind of did you join gangs or you kind of oh yeah. well oh. in in L A it, it didn't matter it wasn't a matter of joining or not joining you were pretty much affiliated based on where you live right that's and people kind of knew where you lived by going to school mm-hmm. so I went to a school called Gompers which was right in the middle of Main Street Crips uh, neighborhood and where I lived with Athens Park which was that was kind of what was known back then as uh, the family. So the Bloods is what they call them now. It kind of later mm. kind of got a little watered-down version of what it is. So where I lived was Bloods. So a lot of the guys that I played baseball with or their older brothers, they were Athens Park boys or they were Bloods, so to speak, Pyru, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guys knew we lived by Athens Park, so therefore – we were part of a rival neighborhood or gang. So that's kind of how that how that went. Um, so I would, to avoid some of that, I played sports, um, talk shit, you know, as a little guy. I was you know, probably the littlest guy. You probably can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of the littlest guys in, the, you know, in our little group uh, of guys that played sports and, and went down to the stables, um, uh, one person that really sticks out for me at the horse stables with this was a pimp, uh, Paul. And he took me under his wing just because he probably uh, liked me. Remember, I didn't have a father at home with me at this time. My father was in Seattle or in Alaska. He wasn't living there. So, And my mother was working at night, and I had older sisters and all doing their own thing. They were pretty much gone by the time I was, you know, of that age. They had their own kids, had their own life. Um, but this pimp, he took a liking to me and mentored me in just some of the ways of life. Uh, and I remember just kind of some of the visions uh, of being with Paul 
him having me take care of his horse during the week, and then he'd come down on the weekend, you know, or at night or during the evening, and he, man, he had bank rolls of money, and he would, you know, he'd break me off a little something here, Larry. Take your ass to school tomorrow. He wanted, you know, he kind of stayed on me, taking school, taking care of myself, being respectful. Uh, but he would also take me on his rounds at night as he collected his money. I remember going up through Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood, all through there, where he would make stops of the ladies that had of the night that had been on the streets, you know, turning tricks, and he'd go by, just like you stopping at a store or a bank to withdraw money. He'd go pick up his package. Come on, Larry, we gotta go pick up some packages. So he'd stop. We'd start at midnight. He'd swing by in his 73 Eldo, pick me up. Come on, Larry, I was nine years old at the time. My mother, she'd be working uh, midnight or graveyard. You might, she might spend that over her man's house. So she so, wasn't home. So you're home a l- like who? What no no nah. yeah yeah, yeah. You, you just running <laughs> yeah, around right you just right that's around. right that's right nine years old nine bro. years old off the porch off the porch come Ooh. on yeah you know my brothers they was going doing their thing one brother was gang my other brother was doing you know shit you smoking weed or anything right oh, now yeah, probably. oh yeah okay. was I smoking weed yet probably maybe maybe not probably wasn't yeah. really smoking weed yet uh-huh. I wasn't smoking weed yet yeah not at nine I didn't really care for it as much really. but mm. so you're um, making your rounds you're making your rounds. And his name is Paul. His name was Paul. Yeah. And Paul had um, some gay guys that worked for him. And they, actually, I think they were uh, trans. And they dressed up as women. And Paul would pull up and talk to them. Hey, baby. Hey, daddy. Hey, daddy. And he'd kiss them. And they'd give him that. <laughs> you know, I'm looking as a nine-year-old. I'm looking at that. Like, wow. It just amazed me to see that and he get in he says, and I, he seen the puzzled look on my face he says Larry that's they make more money for me than anybody out there you know, I want you to understand the relationship how you respect people it don't matter their lifestyle and that taught me early on that nobody's irrelevant and everybody is somebody mm. so um, that left a mark on me to say the least, on, you know, just about how to interact with people. And, of course, some game. I mean, the amount of game I learned from Paul, from shooting dice to hustling to, you know, just being yourself. And he wasn't like a lot of the pimps and hustlers back then because there was a lot of guys what they called gorilla pimps back in the day. They was you know, kicking women's ass, taking the money. Paul, he never did that. I never seen him hit a woman. He never did anyway. It wasn't his style. He was sweet. That don't, you know, it's watering down, of course, maybe glorifying it. But I'm just telling, that's just a story. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not glorifying it. It's just, you know, that's just part of my, my story and part of who I am. And that's part of me, part of what made me the person I am today. It was experiences in life. I can't turn, turn away from, um, also got to be part of uh, friends with my older brother's friends. You know, things that they did affected me as well. You know, um, the way we talked to each other, the way they interacted, the way uh, I approached uh, women. So experiences I got to have 
at a very young age. So that that left a mark on me as well. Um, moving on a little bit through junior high school, early on I was a good student. And then probably from seventh grade, end of seventh grade to the summer to the beginning of eighth grade, it was a, a, a change. I went from being probably an A student to, you know, not really caring a lot. Um, did high school in in in, in did California? Was I didn't go to high school in California, so I, okay. so that's what I'm saying. So from eighth seventh grade to eighth grade, I made a change, and then ninth grade, my mother decided she wanted me to go live with my dad. Eighth oh. grade, actually, mm-hmm. and so that summer I was going to go live with my dad, but there was a there was an incident that stopped that. Um, so some partners of mine, it was three of us, we hung together pretty much all day, every day. We hustled, did whatever we could do to make money. So we, seven days grade, I'm selling weed now and just hustling, doing whatever. Still going to the horse stables. Um, but also there was that other influence too. So my mother said, I'm going to send you to live with your dad this summer. So before I got a chance to do that, some friends and I, my three partners, we broke into this uh, guy's house and stole his guns he was in the army so he had a catch of gun we had cased him out for a week and we did footwork i mean we were deviant so we planned it broke his house took the guns and we each took one and i was showing one of the guns to um one of my brother's older brother's friends mm-hmm. and as i was showing it to him my older sister walked through the front door which the house our house is 900 square feet so you can see from the back to the front and just from standing in the front door. Uh, he, she walks in the front door. I look up. When I looked up, the gun went off and shot me in the leg. So, yeah. so I dropped it. I don't remember what happened after that. I go to the hospital. Police, where did you get the gun from? Where did you get the gun? I, I'm groggy as hell. I don't know. But uh, bullets in my leg. And so that, that, that bullshit they tell you about, you see people running with, bullets in the ass and all that that's probably some bullshit that hot leg was that leg mm. was in my leg man my whole body was on fire mm. so anyway that stopped me from going that summer to live with my dad my other brother chris went in my place because he was fucking up too he was a little higher he was knee deep in the gang culture that's that was his thing so my mother was probably relieved to get him out of there i mean we had uh he was so deep, they, you know, the other gangs knew about him. They did drive-bys on our house. Mm. One of my sisters got shot. Yeah. Uh, she lives. She's still alive. Um, but, yeah, he got out of there and went to live with my father instead. The next year. Where did, where did he live at the time? In, who, in Seattle? My dad. dad yeah, in Seattle? in Seattle. What was his job? You said the last year. Was he a fisherman? My dad was a painting contractor. Okay. So, uh, now, granted, Growing up in L.A., I didn't, you know, I didn't have no trade. I didn't really have visions of what future college, none of that was even a thought. So when my mom sent me to live with my dad, it was it was a culture shock in a lot of different ways. You know, I had never had that father figure. I, I would only see my dad growing up once or twice a year. He would come from Seattle to Los Angeles, you know, in a nice new Cadillac and, you know, wide of money, he would give us a little money, give us Christmas gifts, you know, I maybe see him in the summer 
and then he may come down for Christmas. You know, he had kids. You know, well, he had eight. It was eight of us. My older sisters, they were all pretty much grown. So it was my other three brothers and us, uh, Chris, David, and Charles. So anyway, I went to live with my dad the following summer, and it was a, it was really a, a hard awakening for me because the first thing, I had never been around my father like that, and I didn't know him. And when I get to Seattle, he's living in this big house in the Seward Park area, which is a real Ooh, nice area. Shit. I mean, yeah. swimming pool and all that's Ooh. granted. The house that my mother and my three brothers and I grew up in was probably 900 square feet. We had been on welfare our whole, my whole life. You know, my mother would sell fish dinners to hustle, and she did things to, you know, to hustle and make money. And I get to see I live with my dad. I'm seeing this. I'm like, God damn. Motherfucker been living like this, and we've been living like that our whole life. And um, I was really angry at him. And I told him, I cussed him out. I was like, you know, I told him, motherfucker, you've been living like this, we've been living. And he, my dad, he came right back and he said, look, I understand. You know, hey, man, I ain't been in your life. Um, I can't do nothing about the past. He said, but what I can do from this point on I can teach you how to be a man, and I can teach you how to work. And he did. You know, that's if I if I want if I have one thing, not one. I have a lot of good things to say about my dad. But the one thing he taught me was how to work and how important family is to you. Even though he didn't show that early on in my life. Um. I learned a lot about how family is and work. And then my father, one of the, his greatest gifts that I believe I inherited from him was his ability to read and understand people, mm-hmm. intuition into yeah. people, and, and, and his ability to treat people you know, no matter what walk of life they were from. Um, he was one of the first black contractors in the Seattle area, one of the largest. Yeah, I was about to say, like, Sewer Park, like, that's... You, you, yeah, uh, back in the 70s. Yeah. In the 70s, 80s. Like, like how many black families are in Sewer Park at Probably that point? Probably none, mostly Jewish. That's yeah. What, it was yeah. mostly Jewish. And Why so, he point at you? Because he's Jewish. I know. Oh, shit, what the fuck? That's my partner, Rudy. He's, he's Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, he knows that. Yeah. I need him to validate that. Yeah. That's what's in Sewer Park. I wasn't one of the, yeah, the, one one of the Sewer, Park Sewer Park Jews. Park? Yeah, oh, no. man. I was like, hold hey, up, man. It wasn't his family, no. But anyway, so our neighbors, you know, we see Sabbath. Everybody's walking. Yeah. I don't understand a lot of the people I grew up. We go went to Franklin with were Jewish and they they helped explain to me the part about the Sabbath and why you know there's certain traditions on Saturday and things like that 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 happen. So you have a little bit of understanding about that. It was all new to me. Right, motherfucker coming from the hood in L.A. <laughs> it was all straight new. Like, damn. So has it has now? Quick question: Is any has have you done any? Are you drugging yet? Are you drinking? Are you tab? Are you? Uh, is there any consequences for your actions of yeah, drinking yeah, and drugging? No, yeah, not really. Okay. Um, you know, it's 
for I'm smoking a little weed. That wasn't really my thing. I smoke I smoke weed because everybody smoke weed. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to have it. My brother Chris, he shit, he wake up in the morning first thing, he reach for a joint. For me, I, I didn't want it because it made me lazy, made yeah. me sleepy. Right. And I, you know, I, I always had a lot of hustle in me, so I didn't like that slowing me down. Um, I would drink some. My dad had like beer keg. He had keggers down. We drink. Me and my partner, he come over. We drink. You know, some. I, not really. It hadn't. It hadn't gotten to the point where it had always been prevalent by everybody. I mean, barbecues in L.A. Drink shit. It was all kind of fucking drama and turn up from people drinking. So it was definitely a vision in my life. I didn't like what I saw when my mother would drink. I just didn't like what I saw when my dad would drink. How he would get angry and violent, talk shit to my stepmom and they, you know, it was all I just didn't like what I saw with drinking. Yeah. You know, I was like, fuck, I hated that. That ain't it. I, I hated it. Yeah. So um that's probably why drinking never really was hard for me to quit or I could take it or leave. And that wasn't, you know, my thing, drinking. Um, and, and I'll skip over a lot of stuff to get to this point. Uh, for me, uh, you hold on, hold on. You, you don't have to skip over it. I, this story is beautiful. Okay. So, so you're, you're in Seward Park and you're starting, you know, pot, your dad mm. is like, yo, I, I, I'll teach you how to be a man and I'll give you some work at, I'll, t- I'll teach you how to work. And so now, you, now you're you're in Seward Park. So you, I, oh, yeah. I grew up on Capitol Hill. Okay. I, I know the area real well. Rude, you know Beacon Hill over mm-hmm. here. And so, um, so now you're 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 in this environment. You're going to Franklin. You're saying, and so mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a Garfield guy. You guys are Quakers over here. So I, no, I, I went. To, I went. I oh, you went did? to Garfield. Oh, man. yeah. We'll let's go. So, yeah, come so, on. So anyway, <laughs> the tides uh, turn, I'm baby. Going, yeah. I'm going. To, I'm going to work with my dad, man. He's showing me. I'm loving it because now. Shit, I'm making money. I'm hustling. Yeah. I never was lazy. I always liked to hustle, but now I'm learning how to do something. Right. You get a and trade. I get, I'm getting a trade. Not only that, my dad loved me. I was his youngest son. He's showing me not just how to work. He's showing me business. He's showing me how to think, how to live, how to communicate with people as I get older, going through high school and things. He, my dad, I remember him taking me into contract negotiations with construction companies talking about multi-million dollar projects and I'm seeing these huge lump sum checks he's getting and he would ask for a draw to start a project from the contractor and they negotiate that and he said okay I'll send my son over to pick the check up on Friday Ooh. you know and I go pick up a check $100,000 I'm yeah, seeing it you see the check so I'm like and so it got to be where I wasn't starstruck seeing those big numbers. And he's teaching me business, and he <coughs> is putting me in a position of responsibility and trust. Um, I also had a hunger to learn how to paint, be a better painter. We're going to Alaska. We're traveling around the company, country uh, doing commercial work, um, learning that, start making money. And then... Uh, backing up a little bit in Seward Park, uh, I started playing sports and started playing tennis. I was a tennis player. 
played on the tennis team. I was competitive. Competitive juices flowed to me. I was a pretty decent tennis player, uh, but just wasn't disciplined enough to take it to the next level. And my dad, he, you know, he's taking your ass to work. Right. <laughs> so, right. You're not making any money in this yeah, tennis thing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's right. just the way it was back yeah. then. No, I yeah, and totally get it. Probably was the right move. Yeah. Because shit, I would have been wasting time. But I enjoyed it. You know, I like being competitive. So. Uh, wound up switching from Franklin, going to Garfield, played on the tennis team, uh, finishing school, uh, getting, kicking off painting, uh, painting career even more after 18. Left my dad for a minute, kind of begin, beginning of uh, manhood. Um, went to work for Boeing mm. as a painter, painting airplanes. Okay. For about a year and a half. When I started at Boeing, that's I'm independent. I'm not, you know, I'm, hey, I'm not working for my dad. That's where that was in '80. So that was the beginning of crack, cocaine. You know, freebasin. Actually, it wasn't crack. It was freebasin that started. So that's where I met that. Uh, the first time I did that, I was like, ooh. I found my thrill. Yeah. Hey, oh, that was blueberry. It. And I had, hey, and I yeah, had a good sir. job too, so I could afford it. A, you know, a guy came over. First one was free. Man, he showed us how to do it. Did all the shit, and we watched him how he went through this fucking uh, ritual of getting it ready. And man, coaching you how to use it. I know. Nope, slow down. Speed up. Do this. Getting trained in it. Getting trained. That's right. Yeah. And man, I I got knee deep into it. I mean, it, it was like instant and uh, instant instant addiction because it was just so amazing the feeling that it had uh, on me. And that was 1980. And I didn't look back. Probably for thirty years. What? Yeah. yeah. Really? Well, let's see. So you 80, didn't you didn't 30, try to when did I get sober? The first time I got sober well, so eighty. So it had to I I went straight through till I think I got sober the first time. Kind of, you know, had some painful days like fuck I need to quit. I mean all the havoc and, and wreckage that I was creating. You know, my dad, he didn't trust me after I got deep, deep, deep into my addiction. Were you ever homeless or like, like oh, what's, yeah. one of, one of, what's one of the bottoms that you were hitting? Cause, cause so, um, 80, okay, let me back up. In 80, you know, I started and I was still functional working at Boeing. And then eventually, probably within two years, I had pretty much two, three, four years. I mean, because, you know, we'd go to, I'd go to work for my dad and I'm making $1,000 a week. I'm broke on... I'm broke Saturday night. I mm. spent up all my money. I'm making good money, you know, uh, working, painting, doing construction sites. Uh, he sent us up to Alaska to do painting shit. We sent, had packages delivered up there. I'm making two or three grand a week in Alaska. And we found a way to get cocaine up to Alaska. You know, I'm still a functioning addict because I'm still working. I'm still, you know, I'm, can make money. And the thing about having a trade, you could be broke and you can still go hustle up some more money. So right. I didn't have to go sell no dope to to keep my addiction going. Um so moving on to probably eighty four. 
that's when, man, I'm getting close to my first bottle. You know, my brother, the bull rider, he had won a world title in 82. So, and he, you know, he's riding high, 83, 84. And he would come up to Seattle for, they'd have Rodeo at the Kingdome or something. He'd see me and he's like, man, you know, he's like, man, fuck, my little brother's fucked up. So he said, man, why don't you come live on my ranch? This is in 85. He had a ranch in Arizona, 20 acres. He had horses, bulls, cow, all kinds of shit. Man, why don't you come live on my ranch and, uh, you know, get your shit together? You ain't doing shit here. Mm. I said, okay. So I moved to his ranch out in the middle of nowhere in Arizona, and uh, it was a good starting point. I traveled around, with, you know, going to rodeos with him, just kind of hanging out behind the scenes, having the best time of my life. Shit, I mean, it was party time. It was great. Um, and were you clean at, like, are you? Are you I, I stayed, stay, yeah, I was drying. Okay, okay. I dried, yep, I stopped. Yep. You yep. know, no programming, and just kind of stopped, you know, and just bam. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time, left her, you know, because we, she had, I got her, we both got all fucked up on cocaine, you know, she was productive, it was the best thing for me, I left her there, but eventually she came to Arizona, mm. and, um, let me back up a little bit though, but, so I was in Arizona, and just hadn't really done much, eventually I rent, met a guy who, um, had a construction company. I was looking for work, so I'm ready to start painting again. I need some money. You know, I like, I love painting. I could hustle, and I was good at communicating with people and made friends in this little small town. And guy, he said, "We, well, I got a job for you." He gave me a job painting his office, and he watched me work. He said, "Look, I got a proposition for me for you." He said, "I'm getting ready to build about 30 houses." He said, "I'll let you paint every one of them." He said, "I'll help you. I'll set you up in business. I'll let." Um, let my accountant, my bookkeeper, help you with your books so you don't have to worry about getting in no trouble there. And uh, you hire the painters, you know what you're doing. And by then, I had been painting for, for about mm -hmm. 10 years almost. I had 10 years, and I learned business through my dad, and I knew painting. Um, so he did it. Uh, I'm taking off, man. I'm 5, 10, 15 grand a week. Mm. Yeah, I'm working. I'm making plenty good of money. money. That's good money. Yeah, I'm sober. plenty of sober. Ooh. And, I mean, I'm probably drinking, but eventually uh, got some buddies down from here, and, man, they came down, started painting with me. I said, man, we got, we in. Eventually start using again. Uh, and, man, now, but in a little small town, there was no cocaine. I had to drive 45 minutes to Phoenix to get the dope. So, <laughs> shit. I did. That wasn't no problem. I did it. Got the girl I was with back there, back there with me. And shit, my brother, he came. He's like, man, you gotta get the fuck out of here. Ooh. You know, you. I Same can't have this, man. Right. I'm trying to, you know, I'm a public figure. You know, I'm trying to win a world title, another world title. Just, you know, anyone see me like. Plus, I was. It was some heartache. I remember, I got so bad, man. Uh, my sister-in-law, she was pregnant. My, you know, my brother was married. He had a wife and he had kids. He had one child at the time. And then she was pregnant with the second one, my nephew, Daniel. And uh, I remember I, I was getting, you know, I'm so deep back into the addiction. My sister-in-law let me use her car. And 
I took it and went to Phoenix. And I didn't come back. Ooh. I let, I was broke. I had no money. I let these little dope dealers use the car, and they took the motherfucker. And my sister-in-law, they trying to find me. She went into labor. So with she no had car. No, with no car, and my brother was on the road. So that episode wasn't good. You know, we talk about that. That's some wreckage. Um, that's one of the things. Still got some pain behind that, but that's, I got a lot of pride about where I am now to overcome that. Right. I take pride in that. You know, that was, that was a lot of pain, um, that I caused that kind of havoc. I took the motherfucking car. She going to labor. I'm fucked off you know, up in, on the streets in Phoenix. You know, I lost back to bottom again. I'm homeless. I can't go back Pink, there. Yeah, I didn't Arizona. burn bridges. Right. Shit, I'm popping all around Arizona. I remember living in abandoned houses in Tucson. I don't remember how the fuck I got to Tucson from Phoenix. That's opposite ends of the state. You know, get in trouble, get caught with some dope, catch a case, you know, go to penitentiary for six months, eight months, a year there in, Phoenix, in Arizona. That wasn't good. Got out. Uh, 85. So then I think 87 came back to Seattle. Cause you know, I didn't burn all the bridges. I got to get out. I got to get back to Seattle. My dad, come on back home. And he had, you know, he was here. Said, uh, come on back home, man. Try and get your shit together. I came back, start working, but you know, I'm still in the mix. Now I'm selling drugs to state to, to get high. Mm. You know, I ain't, I ain't doing nothing big. Shit, wound up catching a case here in Tacoma, actually. Did four years? Damn. Almost four years. Damn, Larry. Yeah. Okay. Almost four years for sales. But really, the amount, it was minimal. But it's what I deserved. When I caught the case, my dad, he came to me and came to visit me in Pierce County Jail. He was like, man, we, we got to get you out of this. He said, look, I'll hire you a lawyer, and we'll... we'll Fight it, get with you. I said, no, Pop. This was in 1990. I got to sit. You're like, I got to sit this one out. I said, Pop. I said, it ain't going to fucking matter. Right. You know, it was, I don't even, I won't even say it was hard for me to say that, but I didn't want him to fucking waste his money. And to be honest, it was a relief. Right. Because I wasn't going to stop. I was probably going to end up dead. You know, I, I hadn't found AA. I hadn't found none of that at that point. But I just know I didn't want to do what the fuck I had been doing. I knew that. And being in jail was a safe place for me. You know, I I didn't know how else to not use. And so I went to prison for three years. I was sentenced to, I had an option. I remember uh, my attorney came in with a deal. He said, look, here's the deal. A couple of things you can do. Um, you can take it to trial. If you take it to trial and lose, you're going to get 120 months, which is 10 years. Or the plea bargain is 50 months, which was four years, two months. Or you can be, you can cooperate, 
basically snitch. So for me, that wasn't an option. And I explained that to my dad. He said, snitching is not one of the options. So we're not doing that. And I said, well, Pops, let me, I'm going to probably take the plea bargain. Right now. And he said, okay. I said, because look, I, you know, I did the shit. That's what the bottom line was. Um, they had me, they had evidence for multiple sales to undercovers. Mm. And they had evidence, and the evidence was in writing, they had video. So I did the shit. I told him, I said, man, I did, I ain't going to beat it. I mean, fuck it. Let's, you know, let's get this over with. So that was, that was the uh, first time I got sober. Um, I stayed sober. Got, I went to the penitentiary. I got out, I think, uh, like in 95. I think that's what it was. No, I got out in 93. Get back out. I've been on the streets for a few months. Bam, back in the, <laughs> back in the mix. Yeah. All right? And get caught. At that time, they had drug courts. I was like the first group to go through that drug court alternative to prison program they had in 93. Going there, I remember Judge Martinez, he looked at me and he said, man, look, I'm going to give you a chance. Okay? He said, but we're going to defer your sentence. You caught. He said, but if you come back, you're going to do every fucking day. That's how he said it. And it was going to be like another three, four, five years. All right, so that was 93. I got sober, 93, had got a little time. I remember going to, in 95, I, I was um, in an Oxford house. Mm. Been, I think I relapsed in between. I was kind of struggling back and forth. I remember having 45 days sober. And a guy who had previously lived in an Oxford house that I had gotten into, he would come by once a week. He came by, Fred, Fred E. He came by and he said, man, you want to go to the uh, World AA Convention in San Diego? I can't, you know. I mean, I was, I, sure, I had a painting trade. Yeah, well, I sure, had a painting but, trade. I, I had already gotten a job. Shit, once I got sober, I got a job back again, making $25 an hour. I was making good money right off the bat anyway, right off the, you know. So I went to the World AA Convention. That was moving. Uh, stayed sober for quite a while and then met my ex-wife, 96. We had our daughter, 98. Got divorced. We got, got divorced, 2000. Still stayed sober. I think I stayed sober for about 13 years. Hmm. So in that 13 years, things did, did things get better? And like oh, yeah, you, you're yeah. Building oh, it man. Up and like, you're, yeah, yeah. I, things had gotten better, but I was still spiritually sick. Okay. Mm. All right. You know, I wasn't using. Yeah. I wasn't using. Uh, met a new lady in between there. We stayed together for a while, some years. Um, I remember being 13 years sober, and um, I remember exactly how I relapsed. Mm. I was. I had a little house, nice house, right down in Leshy, and. These neighborhoods you're living in are pretty, pretty nice, man. Yeah, yeah you're, you're yeah. tired. You're sewer park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, I lived in some fucked up places. No, yeah, I lived in shit. Come on, I lived come in on. plenty of fucked yeah, up places. Yeah. All right, so you get your shit together. Get my shit together, side. man. Business is good. I didn't start a new business. Business is good. I'm moving, 
going. Uh, see these two two ladies, they their car break down at Leshire Park, right across the street from my house. Black lady, white lady. I was like, damn, it was cute. I was like, oh shit, y'all come on, you know, you need some help. Car was overheating. And I help. I'm sitting on my porch chilling with a beer. I think at that point I was drinking beer. No, I wasn't even drinking yet. So I'm chilling on my porch and they, yeah, come on, you got anything cold to drink? So I go and get them to drink. I'm looking, I'm like, shit. And they had that look, you know, you could tell they they was in the mix. They said, hey, can we, you know, do a little something? I don't give a fuck, you know. Bam. One hit is all it took. I'm back off to the races. Six months later, I was homeless. Mm. Wow. I mean, this is after having thousands of dollars in the bank, you know. Uh, life was good, again. let's just say that. Relationship with my daughter was good. She had never seen me. My daughter had never seen me um, use her whole life. She was 9, 10, 11, something like that, 12 at the time. But I remember I would, you know, I was divorced and I would pick her up Wednesdays and then every other weekend was my time. I remember having her after I had relapsed, having her over my house, um, driving her back home. And uh, she looked at me and she said, Dad, I don't think I want to be with you for a little while. Mm. What age was she? 12. Oof. Heartbreak. So that was I, I, you know, I open up. So when you're, this is on my, I need to get clear. When when you're using, and are you smoking crack? So when you're smoking crack and you have your child, like how did that? Is this some that like is a you got to stay ahead of the game? Like are you lot like are you using and around her? Are you in the back room while she's watching? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then you come downstairs. Out and I go downstairs yeah, in the garage and right. come back. You know, she's in her room. And now you're and, zooted though. Uh, now, yeah, you're yeah. zooming. You're oh. zooming like a motherfucker. Okay. Shit. I mean, you trying to stay away. You know, but hey, but kids, you got to know. Yeah, and you got to keep. But but you. But you not only keep that. Going. Not only that, uh, Pete. It wasn't just the times I was actively high. Mm. It's just the energy. Yeah. I was letting out. She knew because she knew how I was. My daughter. She was. Locked in with me. We had been close. You know, she knew how I was. She just knew something was fucked up. Whether I was high at that moment or not, you know, she knew. She could just tell. I mean, I could have not used for two, three, four days, you know, if I went that long. But at that time, I I, I was probably going a few days without because I, you know, I still was working and doing a little shit. But she knew because a lot of bad energy I'm putting out. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, and the thing about me and my addiction, I don't know, maybe like this for others, is, is the more I use, the guiltier I feel, the guiltier I feel, the more I use. Mm. Mm. So, it, so it, it kind of played both hand in hand. So I don't want to feel guilty. So what the fuck? Oh, yeah. When you get high. Get as high as you can to forget yeah. about and how guilty fuck. you feel. And then try and hurt and go to sleep or right. crash. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to think about it. So, I mean, because there's no way I was going to fall asleep like I do now peacefully. Yeah. Shit. I think that for me is one of the situations with Oxy. For me, I I would, it was like a sleep, it's like a downer. And so like, you, you'd be so like, 
uh, guilty and there's a lot of shame. And there's like, man, it's just this intense energy of like, man, this is not it. But what, what happened is you you not you nod off into this like dreamy scenario. So it wasn't hard to like go go to sleep. It was just hard that when you were awake, it was like, oh mm. yeah, like you, you, this is hell. This mm. is hell because I I wouldn't. I couldn't like let it go. It was always like chasing the dragon, and so then sleeping was a way to uh, until it was like in my dreams, uh, a way to get away. And so, yeah, I just I just uh, I can so- somewhat relate to that. But that crashing part was like almost like with with Oxy for me it was like nodding off, and so that nod off was feeling so good. But when it was like awake time, it was terrible. For the most part, because I'm ch- I'm trying to chase it, then I got to get higher because the guilt and the shame. Come on, man, and and so yeah, that that was that was my experience on the on the oxy. How about you, Root? Yeah, well, there just definitely wasn't no like going to bed type of like like we do these days. <laughs> going like, to bed. Like, going like, switch the lights off, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah exactly. cuddle up with your teddy right. bear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who wasn't doing all that, you know? And 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 just waking up yeah. with that guilt and the shame and the remorse and just. Just man, I don't I don't miss those mornings, man. Ooh. For me, after like cocaine and alcohol binge and just going hard for like three days, and then just waking up like not knowing what I did, and then just like like you talk about that guilt and that shame kicks in, and then that leads to more drinking, more using. That cycle is just it was vicious. Um, I just want to say too, man, like I've never heard your story, Larry, like raw and uncut the way you're giving it right now. <laughs> See, I thought you said you heard it, man. Not I'm like, this yo, whole dog, version yeah, of it, that's though. what I'm saying. The extended this is version. This real special for me because I've known you like half my life. And it's, you know, like you said, we're family. And I've never, I've chopped it up with you a little bit about, you know, your past and stuff like that. But I mean, just because you have a very unique personality, like anybody that meets you or gets to spend time with you, um, they can tell that right off the bat. And I've always wondered where you got that. I always thought, like, I never heard the story about the pimp earlier. And and, the, and, and growing up, and yeah, the yeah. pimp named Paul. And yeah. So, like, this is real special for me to understand the origin story about mm. where you got your personality and all the stuff you've been through. I never heard about you getting shot in the leg before. I mean, that's crazy. I mean. A lot of the things, too, Rudy, I, it's, it's holes. There's some holes in it because mm. there's a lot of gaps. And I. There's things I still recall. Oh, right. Fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah. You know, and there's visions that I bounce around on in my life. Visions, you know, from experiences growing up in the 60s in L.A. during the Watts riots. Visions of seeing um, the National Guard walking down the middle of my street with machine guns and blackout and coming over on bullhorns telling us um, we better not see anybody in the windows or else we're going to shoot to kill. Wow. And I'm seven, eight years old mm. hearing that. Um, I remember, <laughs> it's a funny fucking story, getting robbed in L.A. Me and my partners walked up to the store. We were nine, ten-year-old little motherfuckers walking up the hill to the store with some change in our pockets. Motherfucker pull over in the car. Grown-ass man pull over in the car, get out with a gun. Say, hey, you little motherfuckers, give us your money. We better get a dollar between the three of you. <laughs> Damn. Rob, they need a dollar? They need that dollar. Bad. A dollar. Yeah, yeah. I remember coming home from school one time, and this car is parked in front of our house. And I see this motherfucker just sitting there, 
you know, he's sitting in, in the car. Me and my buddy live next. My buddy lives next door, and I'm going to walk in the house, and this motherfucker bumped the horn. I'm like, what the? And then see this motherfucker walk out, the, come out the backyard with a fucking pillowcase of our shit. Oh, you know. Oh, see, I, I want to touch on what Rudy just talked about though, which is this is this is exactly the way this podcast was envisioned to be, which is to tell your extended version of your story because. Because the rooms and, and places we go, it's not easy to hear everyone. People got shit to do. Yeah. They can't they can't take the time, usually, to sit down and tell the story at least as much as we can get out of you. Because, of course, you have this lifetime worth of experiences that will blow our socks off. And I think that, that this is just a prime example of just pausing and just saying... Man, thank you for coming here and being so vulnerable, man. Because like this is what we're looking for. This is the stuff that like, it, this is the dream. Well, for me, it, it ain't being vulnerable, man. It's yeah. just you know, it's, it's just who I am. Right. It's my, I mean, this, it's my life, and I don't really have a lot of secrets. I mean, I have some private shit that you know ain't everybody's motherfucking business. I don't <laughs> fuck. You know, I mean, I tell some people some shit, but hey, some shit just ain't meant for everybody and for. Don't get me wrong. The rooms of AA carried a powerful, powerful place for me. But there reached a time where that didn't get it. And fortunately, God put a man in my life who understood that, my partner Steve. And we met, and he, you know, I wasn't really, I, that whole sponsor thing, I, I just, and it's not that I didn't get it. But I needed something different. Hmm. Let's just say that. I now, need now let, yeah, let's. I like. Now we're gonna go get to Steve. Now watch this. So you were relapsing, thirteen years sober. Boom. Your your daughter says, "I don't want to see you any. I, don't, I think mm -hmm. I, we need a break." So now you get on this run. You're yeah, I go, I go on a long run. I go on. I run more after that. So now I didn't got kicked out of my home, homeless. The little house I had, I lost something. Matter of fact, I got abandoned the shit. You abandoned your home? I pretty much. Yeah. I pretty much abandoned it. I mean, with shit all in it. I don't even remember how what happened to that shit that was in there, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, I had, I had Leisure Eye House, right? Yeah, like, it, it was a house is, full of shit, man. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was a nice house, furniture, all kind of shit in there, man. Um, and I wound up moving in with this in this house with this lady over in like South Park, Burien, kind of white center area up there, man. And shit, and we smoking, selling dope to smoke. This is a cold story here. So we selling dope to smoke. Motherfucker coming through every day. It's in this. It's in a nice neighborhood. And she was in the situation still. She hadn't lost her house. She was buying a house actually. And uh, I remember after being there. I don't know. I don't know how long the time span was. So now we selling dope. Motherfuckers is coming in and out of there buying dope, leaving, smoking dope in there, leaving, blah, 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 all hours of the night. And I remember after one Friday night, Saturday morning, you know, we still had dope left over. Because this other drug addict, it's rare I would wake up with dope left over. And, you know, I ain't going to sleep till all the motherfucking dope was gone, pretty much. That's kind of how I roll. But I got to the point now, we didn't, we able to re-up a few times. And we didn't, you know, fuck it, we're going to say something. We can go to sleep now. You know, we see it. Because we can get up. With a wake and up. And have something. And right, have something. Right, right. You know, we good. Shit, we 
trading shit, buying shit. Doing, I mean, man, it seemed like, hey, everything is good. We balling. <laughs> I can wake up to some. Hey, yeah, yeah. I'm ready. Hey, I'm right. balling. I wake up with some dope. So I remember getting my fucking knock on the door Saturday morning, me and her. She, shit, we downstairs already in the basement, packaging up, getting ready for, you know, hey, ready to, we gone, bam, get that wake up, we ready to go knock on the door. She, she, cause I think she might have been upstairs cooking or some shit. That's how good we were. We could motherfucking get high and eat. At the same time. So, hey, so she comes downstairs to me. She said, it's the police at the door. She said, detective. And the motherfucker announced, I said, what? Okay. What the fuck? Let the motherfucker in. They know you're in there. I mean, shit. So we come upstairs. Motherfucker, come on in. He said, I'm detective such and such, blah, blah, blah. He's in the house with He's the in the house, dope dope downstairs. Yeah. Downstairs hey, in the basement doing, on the table. <laughs> hey, and this is, this was, beginning of my new sober time till right now mm. and uh he said look we know what the fuck y'all been doing here you know motherfucking city councilman lives down the street you guys got a lot of traffic been coming in here for months all hours of the night and he said look that stops right now he said he pointed at me he said look motherfucker you didn't been in enough shit. I looked at your whole jacket. I know, you know, what you what you didn't been through. I know you didn't have done time. You keep this shit up. You're gonna get a case, and we're gonna make sure you get slow walk through the motherfucking system. You're gonna sit in the county jail for a year while your shit's going through the system. And her motherfucking ass sitting there, and I'm sitting there like, shit. he said, "Look, here's what's gonna happen. Y'all gonna quit." Selling dope out this motherfucking house. If I see one person come in this house and leave with some dope, I'm gonna arrest the motherfucker. Every time somebody come in and out, I'm gonna go and arrest them, and then I'm gonna come get you. And then the coldest part was, he said, "Look, you two motherfuckers, y'all can go get your shit, come back here and get high as you want a motherfucking get." He said, "We not gonna fuck with you. I don't give a fuck. But ain't nobody leaving here with no drugs they didn't bought from here. You understand?" Hell yeah, so we can go get our shit and get high. Yes, sir. Legal? I'm not going to fuck with you. I promise you. And he gets up and leaves, and her motherfucking ass, fuck that. They can't, I'm doing it. They can't tell. Uh, Are you out your motherfucking mind? I said, the police and toes, we can get high. Fuck that. I got to be able to sell. I said, we ain't making no goddamn money. What's wrong with you? We just, you know, and I told myself, like, shit, I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So I think that Monday, I went to the welfare office and said, hey, I need a motherfucking bed somewhere. They said, well, we got a waiting list, you know, and we can help you, you know, get in there. So you got to get in the system. I think they put me on food stamps and all this shit so I can, you know. Meanwhile, I'm still staying with her, trading food stamps to get dry. I said, look, we ain't selling no dope. I need to go make a delivery. I ain't doing shit. I said, I'm going to give you some shit. I'm going to sit here. So I think it probably took. Because I told her, I said, hey, when they get a bed for me, I'm gone. I told her, I said, I'm over this shit. And so I got a good friend of me and Rudy's. Um, old guy. He helped. He said, man, I'm going to help you. He said, man, you want me to send you to the Betty Ford clinic? I said, no, nah, man, that's a fucking waste. I said, 
I ain't that kind of dope for you. Uh, that ain't gonna get it for me. I said, okay. I said, well, whatever you need, let me know. And uh, so they called me with a bed. They said, you gotta keep calling in. I was calling every motherfucking day. It took probably about a week or so. They got me a bed. They said, well, the only bed we have is in Spokane. So I had a, I had a little car. Um, they said, the only bed we have is in Spokane. Can you be there like Monday? Or it, was like, it was like Friday. They said, can you be there Monday? I said, I'll be there. I mean, I proceeded to get high all motherfucking weekend. I got my car, drove to Spokane. I smoked dope all the way there. Because the point is, you're not supposed to show up high. So you can't show up high. You can't show up with no drugs and stuff. You, you won't let you in. So I showed up there. I parked my shit. And they said, well, we got to have your keys. They took my keys. They said, you high? I said, mm-hmm. I was high as fuck. They knew I was, but they let me in that, you know, um, I think it was like a 28-day thing, man. Like, I got some clarity. And, uh, you know, after you quit using for a minute, you get some clarity. Things, that fog starts clearing out. I'm going, you know, motivated again. And, and so that's kind of beginning of this journey. That's where I, where I got to then, man. It's, uh, I think for me, just thinking about some of this stuff now, it, it definitely brings up a lot of gratitude, but also humility because I know how powerful and how deep my addiction was. And that's why I definitely hold on to, of all the things I lost, it's my mind I missed the most because when I relapsed after being sober for 13 years and you say, man, how the fuck after you sober 13 years you're gonna go back to that all of a sudden and i tell him it wasn't all of a sudden there was a lot of shit that led up to me getting to that point you know i remember creeping looking back i remember creeping in the way i did business you know being just dishonest just little things um, being dishonest, not being, uh, not doing the best project I could, not caring about my work, getting away from golf, even cheating at golf, just living a life and, and from the inside that wasn't healthy. Now, I ain't saying perfect. I ain't saying fucking all high morality. But just for me, I know now what ain't right. It's not that complicated. If something's not right, I know. To me, man, I don't do that shit. That's not right. You know, and I ain't just talking about no thoughts. Because thoughts come. And, you know, goddamn, and they come, bam. I think about some shit now, like, ooh, oh, wait a minute, hey, you can't do that, that gets you fucked up. And, and that's where, <clears throat> that's where having that experience of knowing what fucks me up, you know, and it's not really even a fear, it's a fact. And, and kind of at the point where 
I kind of lost the desire to do a lot of bullshit. I just don't have the energy for it. Now, granted, I could walk out of here right now and you know, see something outside that could trigger me. But I keep that front and center. Because, like I said, of all the things I lost, I miss my mind the most. And once I get to the point where I know I can always figure shit out or always have an answer or always think that I have the power or the strength or the ability to or think that I've conquered mm-hmm. my addiction. Yeah. Or even the desire to conquer it. Now it's, you know, man, hey, I, I'm good. Just stand right in the middle. I don't need to be on a high horse or I don't need to be on a low horse. I'm good. Just, you know, staying at peace. And that's that's really how I live. I live a lot of days doing not much. You know, being at home with my wife, that's my best friend. You know, God puts who he wants in front of you. I'm grateful for that. She is definitely the person for me. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, when you say God puts the people in front of you too, like, because I remember <coughs> when you went when you went back out, because I knew you before when you were sober, when you had the 13 years, and I remember, and you mentioned golf. You, I met you th- while I was working at a golf course, and you were involved with a group of golfers there, and we became friends. Um, but I remember when you b- went back out, People were like, man, I was like, where'd Larry go? And they were like, Larry's gone. That's all they would say. They were just like, Larry's gone. And then I started to hear little stories and stuff, and then you came back. And that's when I was really struggling. And then that's when we started talking. And I remember one time, real specifically, I was working in the restaurant in this golf course, and uh, the restaurant was closed. All the all the t- uh, seats were on the tables, and everything was all cleaned up, and I was getting ready to shut down. And you had just come in from a golf round, and man, we had about a two-hour conversation, and yeah, I remember very specifically. As long as you remember, because I used to come in real hungover, real hungover to the golf course, and I was struggling. I and I think I heard the story about you know you went out, you came back, and I was just curious about sobriety at the time, and I'm just real grateful for that. That one conversation really meant a lot to me. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, <coughs> I remember when uh, one of the things you were telling me, and I shared about this in one of the other podcasts. You told me that, look, Rudy, if, if you take one step forward for yourself, others will take two steps for you. And that always, like, I don't know, I always remember that. It's, like, implanted in my head. And I tell that to other people, like, that I think that, are, you know, that come to me that are struggling with this disease. I tell them that very same line and because it's, it's true. And I started doing that. And then, you know, some people around me, like, kind of formed a support system around me um, after I learned that from you. And that, that stemmed from that one conversation. It's just, I don't remember the whole entire conversation, but I remember that that line specifically stood out to me. Well, I appreciate that, man, because I think as a dysfunctional myself and maybe others that are dysfunctional and people that have gotten some peace in their life and some sobriety, if that means peace for them, but... For me, it seems like there's always an unintended person who says something that makes a difference. And, and I was—I kind of touched on a little earlier when I met Steve. 
in a in an AA meeting because I had been going to AA meetings, man, but I just they just weren't having the impact for me. I mean, and I, I was staying sober, and but man, it just I needed something more. I wanted something more. Yeah, I want fuck. I want to quit drinking. I, man, fuck this. I don't want to do this shit no more. Like a lot of people, but I remember Steve. He said, "Man, look at you. I'm gonna make you a motherfucker. Guarantee." He looked at me. He said, "Man, I'll make you a guarantee." I said, "Huh? That you'll never have to stop drinking." I said, "That's bullshit." He said, "I'm gonna look. I'm gonna make you a, a guarantee. You won't ever have to drink a drug again in your life if you do some things." He hmm. said, "You ain't got to be perfect. You just got to do some shit to the best of your ability." I said, "What?" He said, "Man, Larry, I'm telling you." He said, "If you think I'm call bullshit on it." You can call me on some bullshit," he said. "But you, you know, you do them. It ain't on my ability. I'm not gonna have you. I'm not gonna. You ain't gonna have to live your life hiding in no closet. You ain't gonna have to live your life where you can't have the scent of alcohol. You know, can't watch a commercial with Budweiser. Yeah, where you won't have to live your life with your eyes closed." Mm. You know, you'll be able to live your life like other free people do. Ooh, you can go where any free man I can said, go. Man, that's some bullshit. Mm. And I looked at it, and I remember exactly how I felt when he told me that. It was some relief because nobody had ever said that to me. And like there was a solution to what you've been searching for. You've been you, you've been wandering around trying to figure this out. Well, I hadn't. Even, you know what? It's not that I had even really tried to figure it out, I didn't fucking have a clue. <laughs> you were, I didn't even know where to begin. What so what, right, right, exactly. So right. It, it, it wasn't even about trying to figure it out what not to figure what do what, do, what to do, what not to do. I didn't have a fucking clue. I don't even know if I had a desire because it just seemed like impossible. This is how the fuck I'm going to be. Yes, sir. You know, you see me coming off across the street. I ain't up to no good. <laughs> and Steve said that to me. He said, man, and, and he used to tell me his story. We talked. And he said, Larry, I used to be the kind of motherfucker, man. You see me coming, you cross the fucking street. I said, man, that's how I, feel. I ain't think nobody ever felt like that. <clears throat> nobody else felt like that. And, and, I mean, there's things he said that I related to, and it hit home. And when he said that to me, and when we talked, he didn't talk to me as no sponsor, motherfucker. You got to hold this carry. He didn't, I'm going to humiliate you. I got to right. humble you. Oh, yeah. He ain't doing none of that oh. kind of shit. He said, Larry, this is all going to be based on your relationship with God and your experiences. Ooh. He said, it ain't going to have shit to do with me in the end. And that's what made the difference for me because he said, you're not going to have to rely on me or nobody else to live your life with some peace. He said, you're going to develop a relationship with God, and that's going to be your relationship based on your experiences. And for me, that's where my faith in God comes from, 110%. Ain't no doubt. I, ain't, I don't rely on no person to strengthen or lessen my relationship or my faith in God. And, and it's not for everybody. It's not based on what the Bible says. It's not based on what the Quran says, the Torah. 
any any readings or teachings. My faith is based on my experiences, on how I felt when my ass was on fire. No other solutions. How I felt when I was selling dope in Tucson in the wrong neighborhood, and these motherfuckers said, man, you can't sell on dope here. And I told them to go fuck off. And the motherfuckers jumped me, and they brought, and they had a, had me on the ground, had a big-ass brick to come down on the top of my head. And I moved at the right instant, and that brick crashed into the ground. And a split second later, police sirens start coming off, and that made everybody scatter from that little drug-selling area. For me, I know what that's like. That was God for me. I know what it felt like when I fucked my brother over that had won a world title and I took the car and um, that guilt was eating away at me. I left. I wouldn't call my mother back. And I'm living in abandoned houses down in Tucson, Arizona, just getting high and trying to do whatever, fucking selling aluminum cans so I can go get another hit. And feeling so fucking guilty because I can't get high enough to, to chase this shit. Not only can I not get high enough, I can't even hustle up to get enough dope to get high. Mm. You know, to, to get that feeling again, that euphoria from that first hit. So, and I remember what it's like having that feeling and that guilt sitting on in Tucson, going to sleep at a bus stop after getting kicked out of a fucking abandoned house. Somebody, cause some other homeless motherfuckers wanted to die. Man, you gotta get the fuck out of here. You ain't, you know, you gotta go. So, you know, I remember leaving that abandoned house and wandering around all fucking night, sitting down on a fucking bench at a bus stop, falling asleep, waking up. The, in the morning, hot in the motherfucker in Tucson, Arizona, mm. cars and shit passing by, waking me up. And so much guilt, shame, hurt. Said, fuck it. As soon as the next truck, the right trucks comes by, I'm stepping in front of that motherfucker. Mm. I know what that feeling's like. You know, and, and I can recall on that feeling right now, anytime, because. That's a relationship with God. I said, man, you're not stepping in front of no trucks. You're going to make it through it. So that's why I live today with no fear. Because I know that God ain't took me through all that to drop me on my head right now. You know, there's things that I got to do. You know, I'm grateful for God's presence in me. I'm grateful for the gift that he gives me to give of myself. There is nothing more precious and there's nothing more meaningful and more pleasing than when I give of myself, whether it's caddying on a golf course to some person that's never played golf before and helping them enjoy the experience of a lifetime at a special place, or whether it's being out with some of the best golfers in the world, 
and being in that heat of battle in a tournament, in competition, under that pressure, you know, and providing stabilizing and calming energy to that person that's going through it. So, and now not even that, being in a caddy house with somebody, a caddy that may be in addiction, going through a problem, and picks up on, man, you, you're in recovery. And being able to say, yeah, man, you know, it's a gift being able to give something to somebody and not want anything back. Mm. I mean, that's that's real special for me. So one of the things that uh, my curiosity has always uh been around with with your two's relationship is you you have this common sport of golf and when I first met Rudy Rudy was real humble about his ability to play and as the the further I got along knowing him there was a situation where I was like so like how good are you dog like what's up like and he's like well Pete, I and he tells a story about where he was hanging out at the, at the golf club, and and uh, he was he was working there, and he got good and and uh, practiced a lot, and and there was this one day, me and my my guy my guy uh, Cap uh, Antonio Capiello Capello, um, we we had him like I was like, can you come golf with this, Rudy, and uh, so. We do this like what's it called? Like the practice nine or like the short nine. The short nine. The short nine. We're doing a short well, this guy comes out with this bucket hat. This is Rudy. He comes out with this bucket hat and he's got this like ball gun thing. One of the pickers. Yeah, he's got a picker. Shag and, bag. And, yeah, and he's got the shag. Now now, me <laughs> and my guy Cap, we're 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 getting ready to start. And then Rudy's just like in an in his own little area and he dropped like eight balls and he's just hitting and he's like, no, you guys go ahead. And, and I was like, well, aren't you going to play with us, man? And you were like, well, you know, we, it's okay. And so then I got kind of, and then he would pull up to us as we're playing, as we're hacking away, which I, I'm, I'm trying to learn the game. And, uh, he don't, he doesn't really want to teach cause he says, oh, I just, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher yet. You know, he hasn't taught me anything yet. Right. So, so, the, but he'll pull up and he'll start hitting these balls. And all right, watch it, boom. I'm like, man, hold on, man. This guy's a little hustler. He's a little hustler, right? So, so you, I wouldn't have picked him out of a lineup to say, all right, who do you think is a golfer here? That's just my personal thing. I was like, I don't. You play golf, like, and so then, but I, then I learned about your relationship with him, and I learned that you're a caddy. And I learned that you guys go and play at these beautiful golf courses. Doesn't have to always, well, most of them are all beautiful, but like these really nice ones, uh, high-end ones or wherever. You guys are just going, and I'm getting these little clips of where Rudy's been and hitting the ball. And and so how, how did you guys, how did you get to golfing and like caddying? Like what, what was that story about? So, huh, interesting. So that's one of them got things so um 2011 i i've been divorced Uh, my daughter was two years old but she lived in seattle and i co-parented with my ex-wife even you know after 
for you know for the most part one I was sober and so I had relapsed and got back sober and then you know thing was going pretty good for a year or two I think my daughter was probably heading toward the end of middle school and she had some personal stuff she had tried to commit suicide for some of her personal issues and uh, she got back healthy and eventually um, her mom, my ex-wife, said, you know, we, we want to move to Atlanta with our with her best friend was there. And they had a son. Her best friend had a son that was the same age as my daughter, and they had been friends forever. And her son and my daughter, same age, they were like God brother, God sister. And she had always wanted to live in the same city with her. So they, she said, we're moving to Atlanta. I said, what? You got to be kidding me. You know, and I finally got my shit together. And I'm like, man, I ain't going to see my daughter. And that was in, that was like probably May, around this time of year. This is it. And um, my daughter. Mary, what, what year are you talking? 2011. Okay, all right. And, uh, I, was like, and I could fight it because I had, you know, I had been to court, got my shit back together, and got my rights back, and we were co-parenting. I had, we had a parenting plan saying, hey, if somebody has to move, if somebody wants to move, States, they have to go through the courts and get approval, all that. And uh, my daughter said, you know, Dad, yeah, I, I think I want to change the scenery. I said, okay, what do you think? You know, she was 12. She was old enough to see it, voice what she wanted. And I said, okay, if that's what you want to do, then I won't, you know, try and fight it. You know, you go ahead and go. And, and they left. And so they, I think a month later they left. So I think, like, after they, right, a little bit after he left, I was talking to a buddy of mine who used to live here, and he had moved to Georgia. And he said, man, if you want to come caddy, uh, I can get you on here. I had never caddied before. I'd been around golf since you know, I was in my 20s, but I'd never caddied. I'd never even thought about being a caddy. I was a painter. And uh, the thing about painting in Seattle is seasonal. So uh, the caddying season ran when it was slow for painting here in Seattle. It was either I had been contemplating moving or going to Las Vegas with another buddy of mine who was a painter down there. He said, man, we can, you know, we can hustle up. Painting's good here. Right, it's like year-round. Year-round, right. Or no, it's year-round in yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yeah. Year-round in Vegas. It was booming. He said, man, we got all kind of work down here. You know, you're, you know, you can come here and work. So my buddy said, man, you can come caddy. I said, well, let me think about it. And also, I had just met Recently, I think shortly after that, just met. Uh, I might have just been with. She was my girlfriend, my wife at now, at the time, Penny. We hadn't been together that long, and so I told you know we talked about it, and uh, I said, hey, Kenny said I can come, come here and go to Georgia and caddy. Uh, she said, well, you know, hey, if it's what you want to do, then why would I stop you? That's, you know, that was real strong. So it was only part of the year as well. So are you catting for like one guy? Now I do, but this was at, it's at a club. It's okay. called a club caddy. I never caddied. Um, so I started doing that uh, in 2011. And it, being a club caddy is more, it's basically like providing a service. You don't tip normally. At the outset, you don't really have to 
be real knowledgeable about what to do, what not to do, where to go, and all that kind of stuff. It's really about, about providing a service, kind of like what somebody at a uh, restaurant would do. You provide good service and enjoy people having, help people enjoy their experience when they mm-hmm. come to the special golf course. Right, right. So that's kind of what the hope is for the the caddy company. Hey, we hire some people. They kind of is more focused on the type of service you provide. It's so, not like instruction, and you're not no, like, yeah, no, you're, you're not doing all seven that. iron, right? Do. Well, as not at the outset, right? But it depends on how good you want to be, right? So for me, uh, I I liked, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be. Once I started doing it, I I invested myself into it. I had a friend who told me, man, no matter what you do, I don't do it half ass. So I took pride and I started learning. And that's kind of where, like I said, where God came in. It worked out so I could go there to be closer to my daughter part of the year. And uh, I would, uh, she was about two hours from where I was working. So I would go to Atlanta once, a, maybe twice a month. You know, I'd go to some of her uh, school activities, go to the game, then I'd pick her up. We go do stuff. We drove to shit, Tennessee. We drove to North Carolina to games. We went to Seahawks games. Went to a lot of different events. So, and it it mattered. It mattered to her. It mattered to me. Me being close to her part of the year. So that was uh, that was fortunate. I That's that God it. stuff. That's that God stuff, yeah. brother. God worked it out. So right. that. So anyway, they left in June of 2011. And October 2011, I started working in Georgia at yeah. the golf course part of the year. So yeah. that was, and, you know, I worked on my craft. And that was, well, what's the, that's 12, this is going on my 13th season doing it. My daughter, she graduated from high school. She went to college in Chicago. Now they graduated and they still live in Chicago. I still go to Georgia. We own a house there or a condo there. Uh, I go there. I've, I've traveled to China. Caddying, I've caddied at Pebble Beach. I've caddied, you know, for professionals, top professionals in the world, amateurs. I love doing it. Do you? So, so I just get so curious about this. So, do you? <laughs> do you? Do you like have certain people? Uh, like, do you have like people that you just work with? Or, like your yeah, guy, yep, your guy. Yep, you you I, got a I guy. Have, so now, starting going forward, because I want to start being home more. I want to start being in Seattle and, and uh, you know, being close to my, my wife and my dog's family house uh, and my painting business I have here. Uh, so I have a couple of members and so now going forward I'm pretty much kind of go, just going to go back and forth when they're there. Okay. So you're no longer giving that service. I'm, I'm giving the service to him. Right, right. But but, but we've developed, so we're cl- friends now. We've developed yeah. a friendship and he wants me there when he's there. We right. talked about this. He said, man, well, I want you here when I'm here. Yeah. I said, I want to be. And I've developed a relationship, developed a relationship with his family. We're, we're close. He's close to my wife. So we're friends. We're like family now. And so it's a special place for him, and it's a special place for me, and we enjoy spending that, <laughs> that, yeah. that, special, that time together. And you it's know, on the golf course. Pl- it is just a special place. It's a special place, place and it's he enjoys being on the golf course. We enjoy being together. You know, it's just 
one of them things. Yeah. And hey, God worked it out so that can happen. Yeah, and and Larry's being humble right now. He works at one of the most prestigious <laughs> golf courses in the world. Yeah. Hey man, he's been super humble today. Just get that straight. No, that's, hey, that's amazing. Hey, it's amazing though. Uh, what? Yeah, 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 that ain't me. That ain't. I know. Hey, that ain't my shit. That's yeah. that's God stuff. It yeah. don't belong to me. Speak that. Yeah, hey, I'm telling you, man. And plus, so you know, one thing, man, is at the end of the day, ain't. Uh, there's very few of us when we're on our last breath going to talk about what we didn't have. Mm. You know, we're going to probably be talking about what we didn't get a chance to do. And there's even few of us. I, I, I really, now this is one thing I'm not humble about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> it's really special for me to be able to touch people. There is no greater joy I get. That's the one thing that sends me to the moon. Being able to connect somebody else with the access that I have. And I got some access to some opportunities and experiences that I don't get to enjoy them if only I get to enjoy them. I get a lot more pleasure out of helping others with that access to whatever event, to speaking with somebody, to an opportunity, or just mentoring. You know, that's, I mean, man, that's a joy. Very few people get the experience like, fuck, I was able to really help somebody get somewhere. I ain't humble about that. Well, you know, you know, and I'm one of the ones that like you're a mentor to me. You know, you've provided me to access over like, for example, um, when I turned to one year sobriety, you invited me to come out to Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, to play one of the most prestigious golf courses in the world. And you had access to that and you, you provided and invited me. And as a celebration for turning one uh, one year sobriety birthday. But it goes way beyond that. And I'm just one of many like I mean, you work with kids too, you know, mm -hmm. small kids that are have potential golf careers ahead of them. Um, you've touched a lot of people in, in this lifetime already. And I mean, well, I kind of like I say, hey, that ain't me. That's God. Mm. That's God, you know, because it's connected to me staying right in the middle. Mm. Without no God, ain't no none of that. For me, now, like I said, everybody else got their own shit. I keep mine plain and simple. What What are some of the practices that that you do to uh, stay in the middle? Like, like, are there some rituals that you do, or is it morning stuff? Is it what? what what's your What's your thing? <laughs> it's daily. Yeah. Okay. Um. It's really no rituals. I don't think Pete is just staying accessible. You know, staying honest with myself as far as, you know what, there's a God that ain't me. And of all the things I lost, I miss my mind the most. You think I'm bullshitting when I say that. You know, I was just a fucking saying, that's bullshit. I know that, man, because when I fucking think I'm too smart, when I start thinking I'm better than that person, 
or that motherfucker ain't shit, then that's some shit going on in my head that's going to get me to somewhere that's real fucked up. I, I don't have no doubt about that. So, I don't want to lose that compassion for others. And when I lose that, that means I'm getting away from God. When I start becoming so judgmental, and don't, don't get me wrong, I have opinions about people when I talk shit, you know, when I'm on one or, man, this motherfucker, I can't, you know, I do it just like everybody else. And I get angry or upset or I hate that motherfucker, this motherfucker, I can't stay. You know, I, I go there too, but I think what helps me is not staying there. You know, that, that and not only that, acknowledging like, man, you're in a fucked up place. <laughs> you know, yeah, oh, man, that's real. some fucked up shit. Yeah. Like, damn, mm -hmm. what's wrong with you? Who, yeah. You know, I mean, just, hey, back that ass up for a minute. You know, and the ability a lot of times, Pete, because when I'm in Georgia at my place, um, there, I'm either working on the golf course or I'm golfing on the golf course, and because ain't much else to do in that little city. So, um, how do you how do you uh, so interestingly enough, you're like you're away from Penny and you're like at this condo all like all by yourself and like is there is there thoughts uh, is there thoughts of deviation. Is there thought uh, and and yeah and yeah okay you want hey I'm gonna keep it real uh, who the fuck yeah of course there is but look <laughs> okay it's too much yeah. like fucking work okay and I've told this to Penny I was like look I'm not fucking around it's too much work the only way I would and it ain't happening I would devi be a deviant and go mess with some other women after pat them on the head and their panties fall down okay mm. that shit ain't happening nowadays. Uh, <laughs> so and man i you know i don't have the energy to do that kind of shit like that man i mean i ain't perfect you know i can't say what i will or won't do you know giving putting something in front of me but i'm not that's part of staying kind of in the middle because i ain't willing to go out and do a bunch of fucking lying courting to some women and because I got a movie of my own of what that leads to. And that's part of it. You know, for me, that was, ooh, that's an Achilles. That's my Achilles heel, man. Mm. A female, yeah. you know, hey, that. fuck it. She fine, boy. I sure want to hit that. So that means, look, there's a lot of shit that can go wrong. No, not that will go wrong once I start that kind of shit because of my experiences. Mm. And they ain't no lie. That's the right. truth. There is, that ain't no fucking theory. These, right. This is exactly mm. what has happened to me in my past when Come I had 13 on. years sober. Come on. Okay, it comes from females. Let me holler at them. Mm. Okay, I holler at them. Lo and behold, the motherfuckers smoke crack. Fine ass you looking good as hell, pull up right on a dead. I'm, I'm living on a dead end street in Leshide. Sunday evening, about 6 o'clock, it's quiet as hell. Ain't nobody there. Their car breaks down at a park right across the street from my house on a dead-end street. 
Yeah. Oh man. You see what I'm saying? You gotta go through it to get to it, huh? And and that sent me six months later, I'm homeless. Right. So that's my story. I have no doubt. It may not happen exactly like that. It may not happen that quickly, but based on what's happened to me in my past, it's a pretty good chance. I start doing a whole bunch of bullshit trying to, you know, sleep with or a bunch of different women lying, cheating, fucking them up. Now, you know, because 40, 50, 60 year old women, they ain't trying to just do no booty call. They want a man. And that's what I tell folks, man. You know, they they ain't trying to be no damn side chick, you know. And so that means I got to do a bunch of lying to them and my wife. Eventually, that shit catches up. Not only that, I mean, it's going to catch up. And now what? It's a lot of havoc. So I sit my ass still a lot of nights, pretty much every night. I don't go to where I tell you. I'm working on the golf course or I'm playing on the golf course. I don't even go out to eat. It's not because I'm hiding in the closet. I like to cook. I love to cook. Mm. That's one of my favorite things to do is cook. And so I enjoy that. Uh, I like to read. Love to read. I'm, I'm, what book are you reading right now? You got anything uh, on the tip of your tongue? I just finished uh, John Connolly. So it's, uh, I'm reading a book called The Furies. It's, it's fiction. But, you know, there's some fact in fiction, too. But that's what I'm reading right now. And I read more, mostly when I'm flying at the airport traveling, so I do that quite a bit. Um, but what you said there, Larry, about, like, it's, it's not a theory, it's your experience. Because that's, you always drilled that home to me that, like, with my on my recovery journey, it's, it's very personal to me. And I don't have to look too far as far as searching for recovery. I got to look at my own experiences, you right. know, with my, my experience with God, my experience with drugs, my experience with alcohol. And, like, it's your experience is your experience. And Pete's experience is his is Pete's experience. Because I just feel like a lot of times it could get easily kind of mixed up. Like, I'm trying to learn from you. I can learn from your experiences, but my own experience is going to be the best teacher and, and my best, um, you know, I got to go inside. So your real. best tool. That's it's your real. best tool. That's 100. Yeah. That's 100. Yeah. Um, There is no great experience in your own. My shit about you is my shit for you. I can always, I can tell you 100% what's best for you, but that shit may not work. It may have you all fucked up. Hmm. I ain't got your answer. Yeah. It's like you don't have mine. But what happens a lot of times, especially, I won't even say new in sobriety, just at times when we're going through something, we need some help, so we're looking for some answers. And we don't always know or have the strength. I don't always have the strength, power, whatever. I, the faith, the belief, that connection with God that, to find the answer. I'm looking to somebody, man, what, so what, what should I do? And so we seek a lot of different input from a lot of different people. Right. And sometimes it's not always healthy, right, accurate. You know, it's what they think is best for us. You know, and that's based on their experiences. Right. Right. 100%. And it's not that they have ill intentions. It's just, you know, hey, motherfucker, look, carry this motherfucking teddy bear around because we want you to feel humble. 
to humiliate yourself so you can be humble. You too arrogant. You too this. You too that. So do this. But going back to you know the studying and the workshop that I did to get to to get some tools mm. to live sober. What are some of those tools? So some of those tools were um, being honest with yourself. You know, you base it all on your truth and experience. That's one thing my good buddy Alvin and Steve are Larry. You got all your own answers. Mm. Base Just base some shit on your experience. Don't even deviate from that. If you base it on your shit, that's, you know, that's one of the tools. The other one, the one I probably use the most, Rudy, is sitting still. Mm. Yeah, you talk about standing pat with me before. Standing pat. That's mm-hmm. that's the one that works for me, man, more than anything because I get impulsive if I'm sitting by myself, bored as fuck, fucking with my phone, run across a number, like, oh, what's up? Mm-hmm. You know, what the fuck? I mean... Shit, I got motives. I mean, call somebody, hey, oh, man, I ain't talked to her in hella. And before you know it, before I know it, you know, this shit done took a life of its own. So that's why it's essential for me to stand pat. 99% of the time. You know, the, now probably the, the biggest risk I try and take you know, I've said it's going for a par five and two over water. <laughs> <laughs> if you ain't a golfer, you may not be able to relate. I can add it yeah. up. All right. Well, so, it sounds yeah, good, yeah, golfer yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all right. That's yeah. trying to fucking go for the right, green. Guy, yeah, go yeah. for the green over water when I know my ass don't hit the ball far enough. So that's probably going the ball's probably going to end up in water, but that's okay. It's just, you know, I can hit another shot. I don't like it. But that's what I'm saying in relationship to the kind of risks that I'm willing to take. I ain't really trying to take risks where I'm going to meet somebody in a grocery store or go to a fucking club or go to a bar to see what's up and see some fine chick sitting there. Now I got to start yapping and telling her, you know, don't get me wrong. I've gotten close. I've even called a few, but it didn't work out. And I stopped like, wait a minute. Mm. Fuck you doing? You know, uh, don't take it no further. So, and, and it's a daily thing. It it ain't no. I'm. I got it. I'm there. So, if somebody's struggling out there right now, can you give us uh, something that maybe they can hang their hat on today? Like, you ain't alone. You are not alone. You know, if you take one step, it's a guarantee somebody gonna take two for you. That's the hardest thing in the world to do is ask for help because you don't know how to fucking ask for help. And and once you find some the right person that you relate to, you don't have to try and say a bunch of shit. They'll know. You know, just be around somebody with mm-hmm. some good energy. Yeah. You know, and allow, you ain't got to do a bunch of talking and figuring out shit. Just, you know what, man, I'm going to just, Kick it with you. Let me say this, and we'll finish. Um, I had a friend when I when I was uh, I had relapsed the last time, and he had been trying to get a hold of me for months and months and months and months. He was 
had a lot of resources, a lot of access. He couldn't because I was high and I didn't want to talk to the motherfucker because I felt guilty and shame and I didn't want him to see me like this. I didn't want him to hear me like this. And he finally got a hold of me. He said, man, uh, I'm going to tell you something. I'm your friend whether things are good or whether things are bad in your life or not good. That's how he said it. And he said, here's what I want you to do. He came up with a formula. He said, I want you to call me every day. Every day. We're going to get through this. He said, I'm not going to ask you what you're doing, how you're doing, when you're doing it. I don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. I just want you to connect with me. That's what he was saying. He said, just call me. I ain't, you know, that's all I want you to do. And I did. He said, can you promise me that? He said, that's all. I want. And that's what, that's what I did. So find a friend like that that you can connect to, and you ain't got to have a bunch of answers, and they ain't going to ask a bunch of questions. That's what I mean by if you take one step, somebody will take two. That person took two steps for me and beyond. Um. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I know I got two of those friends at this table with me, and I just want to say thank you for coming here and, and sharing your truth with us, Larry. I mean, I got a guy was Larry. We we learned a lot. I mean, man, that was epic right now. I appreciate your story. Like, well, I, like again, it, it helps me, Pete. Yeah, it yeah. helps me. I yeah. appreciate it. And we uh we love to have you back too. Yeah, That'll come be on, an ongoing thing. So come on, Larry. So I appreciate yeah. you. Uh, I think yeah, that that'll wrap, Larry. Hey, appreciate okay. your time and uh, love and respect, baby. Boy. Love you, love you, man. Thank okay, you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I had to grow hey, a beer you know, next it's, time. It's beer I can grow time. one. Yeah. I can grow it's one. Beer hey, time, baby. Yeah, we got the Fiji water, man. You gotta drink up. Oh, you can. All right, I can grow a beer. You can. Yeah. All right, bring it, bring it next time. Next time, bring it next time. All right, man. Thanks, Mondo Color Studio. All right, man. Thanks everybody out there and man. Episode five. That's a wrap.